Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hi, I'm Charles Roberts. Today is Friday, January 12th, and with me is Andrea Schwartz. How are you? I'm good, Charles. How are you? Not too bad for a cloudy, rainy, muggy day here. Then it wasn't out of the question that we do this podcast because you have nothing else to do if it's raining there, right? Yeah, that's right. But um, speaking of things out of the question, today uh, a lot of people have asked the question or wonder, why does my spouse want to end our marriage? Why does my spouse want a divorce? And out of that question comes, I think, a more significant question, which is, what are the motives? What are the reasons to get married in the first place? Let me add that I know many people who have been married over 40 years and have multiple children who, at this stage of their marriage, are dissolving it and are Mm -hmm. saying, you know, we can't live with each other anymore. It's not working for us. And so rather than try to solve the divorce question, it really is wise to take a look at why do people get married? Why should people get married? What what does the Bible state about marriage? If you don't really consider those things, things can go along pretty well for a while, maybe a couple of years, for some of these people, decades, and then somehow or other, the foundation falls out from underneath them. This isn't an insignificant question, and I think in society, we have a lot of, well, we just don't love each other anymore, yes. or I just don't love her, or I just don't love him. Yeah, I remember a movie back in the 70s. I've forgotten the name of it, but it was about this couple who were going to get married, but uh, quite scandalous for that time. They were actually living together. Uh, This movie must have come out in the early 70s, and one was an Irish Catholic, one was an Italian Catholic, so there was a lot of you know, traditional stuff being brought to this on both sides of the family. And they both, both families were upset that the couple were living together. And I remember very distinctly that I forgot which of the two, the man or the woman was having a discussion with one of their parents. And they made the statement that, you know, we just don't live lies anymore. In other words, you and mama or you and dad have been married all these years, but you're basically living a lie because you don't really care that much for each other. And we're just not going to do that. You know, we're, we're going to do it the, the modern way, the new way. And I think this has complicated the matter in terms of motivations for marriage. And it also, in a roundabout way, influences people who you referred to who have been married for a long time. I mean, it's hard to escape the, the creeping, seeping influence of our humanistic culture. It infects every aspect of our thinking unless we are on guard. But the idea about what motivates people to get married in our time is frankly very different and very new when you consider marriage as an institution, not, and not just simply Christian marriage, in human culture for thousands and thousands of years. The fact is that most people got married from arranged marriages. They didn't really know their spouses all that well before they were married. When I lived in New York, I went to a, a place to get my hair cut that was a, a part of a national chain, and it just so happened the, the woman who I like best who cut my hair was from India. And I remember asking her, and she wasn't, I guess she was probably in her mid-40s, maybe a little older, I'm not sure. 
but in in terms of her marriage, and she said, yes, my husband and I, we had an arranged marriage. That was very traditional in India. And they seem to be quite happy. But I think part of the problem is that people bring a lot of expectations to marriage today that are not certainly not biblically based. I think this is where the failing and the falling down comes in, is that even people who aspire to know something about Christianity and profess Christianity, they're getting a, a substituted bill of goods for what Scripture actually teaches. I think that's true, and I also think that the modern thing says, well, if we don't get married, we won't have the heartache. But really, that's just a preemptive, I can get out of this relationship. And so the whole idea of permanence and even the till death do us part really comes across as being unnecessary. In other words, we're going to hang out as long as we're both happy, but that really starts the relationship based on a standard that is very subjective rather than very objective. Yes, and I, I think part of that problem is a lack of understanding about the nature of covenant and that marriage is a covenant relationship. And that when it's properly understood, it's the nature of that covenant relationship that becomes the center of the marriage. You know, some, not all, but some of my premarital counseling that I've done over the years as a pastor, and I think this actually comes from that R.C. Sproul video series that I think I referenced in a previous discussion. And it's a question like this, and this would be aimed at the man in this case about his wife. Okay, Joe, you've been married five years, and you wake up one morning at 6 a.m., and you look over, and there she is with the beer can curlers in her hair, her mouth's hanging open, she's snoring, and you just look at her and you think, man, the thrill is gone. I just don't feel the same way I used to. And the question is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when that happens? And of course, the point is, is that it doesn't matter. That is not the central thing. The central thing in the marriage is not how you feel at that moment or how she looks at that moment. The central thing is that you made a covenant. You entered into this relationship, and there are certain stipulations that you agreed to, and one of them is still death to us part. And so I think people bring expectations in their motivations to get married that are somewhat profoundly unrealistic. I also think they don't understand that it's not just a personal thing. If we make it a personal thing, then our emotions, our intellectual compatibility, then that becomes all that matters. But if you fail to recognize that the family is God's basic institution and the health of a society can be measured by the health of the families in that society, then there is a generational influence. There's a generational commitment to virtues like loyalty and integrity and mercy and forgiveness, but they all have a context in terms of something greater than the people involved. Yes. And so when we make it just personal, as opposed to, as you said, covenantal and then extended to familial, because when two people get married, whether or not everybody agrees to it, those families get married as well, because that's part of the baggage that comes along with each person. My husband always likes to say when two people are contemplating marriage, one of the first things they should do is spend some time with the families. Find out what baggage is going to show up. Yes. He says, now, everybody's got baggage. So when the baggage shows up, the question is, can you live with this baggage? Because now's the time to decide if you can live with this baggage. If you can't, Right? It's like the person who comes and says, I'd like, to visit your, I'd like to visit with you for a while. And you say, okay. 
and you expect one suitcase, but instead he comes with 20. That's not <laughs> what you were expecting. 20 suitcases say this is going to be a long time. Well, I personally think much more time needs to be spent on preparing for marriage than preparing the wedding, because the wedding is just a showcase, and it's not always even reflective of the couple. It's more reflective of maybe how they want to impress other people. Yes, and there are uh, quite a few TV shows on nowadays where like, uh, th- that's the whole point is you know, th- these three or four women compare each other's wedding ceremony. And it's interesting, the cultural assault on these things that we're talking about, because you've got those kind of programs where the focus is all on the ceremony and how beautiful the dress is and how much it costs with the food. And then you've got these other shows like uh, I don't want to mention any of the names, frankly, but they're, they're, they, they basically represent an attack on the traditional family and marriage. I'm, I'm certainly not saying that marriages today must be like they were in the year 1060 and we must get back to the arranged marriage model, although I, I don't think that necessarily that would be all that bad. And I think to, the, to your point, a lot of this uh, getting to know the families or knowing something about the baggage that's being brought into uh, the relationship, I think in, in older times, that sort of stuff was discussed by the families, by the fathers, you know, okay, well, what's your situation? What's your daughter or your son? So those things were recognized and dealt with. I became aware of a book that R.J. Rushdoony was very, very impressed with and relied on a lot for his research on the subject of the family. It was a book published back in the, I think, late 40s called The Family and Civilization by Carl Zimmerman. To show you how things have gotten, I searched everywhere for a copy of that book, and you can find it on Amazon. But guess what? It has been highly edited. Several chapters have been completely removed from it. I found a copy on interlibrary loan. It's twice the size of the one available now. And there were several comments made on Amazon about how the book had basically been gutted of some of its important chapters. The copy that I got, uh, you could tell that this man, and he was a sociology professor who really was setting out to do objective work about the importance of family and civilization, and he traced the history of the importance of of the familial relationship in terms of culture and in terms of perpetuation of, in our case, a, a biblical culture and the significance of it. So I think there's this realization, like you said, it, it's all about personality. What can I get out of this? This is what I want, rather than an attitude being instilled in a positive way that we're on a mission. We have a duty to fulfill. We have kingdom work to be about. You can certainly bet the devil's people are very motivated when it comes to that, and we've seen the outcome of this alternate, this anti-type being portrayed in modern society. And I think we have two real categories of people. We have the people who are currently married and didn't come to marriage with the understanding of a biblical marriage, but none the same, they're married. So how do you help those people? I talk to a lot of women, and oftentimes their suggestion is, I just have to get out of the marriage. Well, that sounds convenient, except statistically, quite apart from biblically, but statistically, Women who are divorced do not fare as well in society. So there must be something about marriage that actually is beneficial to women. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the feminists would have you say, well, the man just has a slave and his wife, and she gets all the nasty work, and he gets all the pleasure. But again, 
that's more indicative of the fact that income together with a third partner in their marriage and everyone should have a third partner in their marriage, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, because personalities, sin, disagreements, all sorts of things can get in the way of what's right. And if you don't have an objective standard to go back to and say, yeah, you really do bother me, but that's not grounds to end our marriage. But it should be the impetus to work to fix what's broken as opposed to destroy what's broken. The other group of people, of course, are the people who are in a position to enter into marriage. And a lot of them say, I don't think I want to do this because I see how many unhappy marriages there are. And you have whole groups of people, I would say we're getting close to the 50%, if not more, range of people who come together, live with each other, have children together. But you'll rarely hear in those circumstances, this is my wife, what you'll hear is, this is my daughter's mother. Mm, yeah. So we're, we're missing an important factor, one that's so important that that's what brings about the question, why does my spouse want out of the marriage? Well, if you didn't spend time thinking about why you should get into a relationship and how it's not even an option. In other words, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Obviously, the normal state for man is marriage. And the only state for man where he can be intimate with a woman is marriage. So you might say, God set up the rules, and the pleasure comes after the obedience, but it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be real instances of conflict. As a matter of fact, I think it's inevitable, because sometimes without the conflict, you don't have resolution. Sometimes without a conflict, you don't even really know what the real issue is people are arguing about. Well, let me, let me ask your opinion on this. If we have something of an idea about what kind of context would nurture a biblical understanding about the motivation for marriage, how in our modern context do you think we should go about creating a situation where that can flourish? We've got to go back a little bit. Marriage is part of a greater thing, that greater thing being the kingdom of God. And so when we're told by Jesus to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you, then we also have to look and say, so what's the structure? What's the architecture of life that God has put in place? So marriage, where it has personal and pleasurable aspects to it, the real purpose for two people coming together must be furtherance of the kingdom of God. So if we don't understand things like dominion, and the purpose of why God creates us to glorify him, and in the process of glorifying him, enjoy him, because there's benefit, there's blessing with obedience, then we're going to have some real problems trying to identify how to guide people into this direction. So does the church teach, do parents teach their little boys and girls that I'm preparing you for the time when you will get married? And have your own family and why it's a good idea for families to know each other and arranged marriages we can sound like the person is coming dragging and being shoved together no there's always going to be consent the arranged marriages don't include I'm forcing you to do something you don't want to do but it's two families that basically say you know I think this might be a pretty good arrangement and so they nurture a friendship and then there's a greater 
possibility of knowing, is this yoke that we're putting on them? Because it is a yoke. Marriage is a yoke. Is it one that's unequal? Do we have a moose and a chihuahua? And, you know, what does that look like when you're trying to take this harness and go through a field? No, you have to be equally yoked because the challenges of life require a similar world and life view. I think that along with that, the idea that we create or try to establish communities related to churches, but not necessarily so, where people share in common this vision and this understanding. And I know attempts have been made at that, and we can always point to various ministries or churches or whatever where people have had this, at least tried to have this understanding about kingdom building and the fact that God calls us to dominion and there have been failures. Well, you know, that's going to happen. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the motivation and the biblical purpose behind it is wrong. It just means that that particular person failed at it. And I think, too, that this sort of thing becomes more and more bizarre looking to a culture like we have. I remember the PBS special where Dr. Rustuni was interviewed by Bill Moyers. I don't know if it was Moyers or the writers, but they did their best to make him look so anachronistic and so outdated. You know, he looks like an Old Testament prophet from, you know, out of place in modern society. And I think that's the attitude that many people want to bring to anyone. And just take the word dominion, for example. You use that term. Scripture uses that term. That's come to mean in the popular secular culture, so-called, that these are people who want to take over the political process and impose some 1950s morality when in fact it really is something far more fundamental than that and that is you know we become bridled to the law of god we become yoked to god and his way of righteousness and that then leads forth to these other things i believe there was a, a recent article about this in faith for all of life about what does it mean to be meek this idea of meekness is related to being bridled like a horse like a, a horse is broken and bridled to be functioning and, and proper behavior and that's to be our relationship in, in the institution of marriage and, and what God says about it. And the confusion today with the definition and meaning and connotations of dominion, people have made it domination. Yes. It never speaks of domination. Where it's true that a wife is to be submitted to her husband, the Bible also says the husband is supposed to be submitted to his wife. It's a mutual submission. But if two people come together solely because they enjoy each other's company, solely because they have fun together, solely because one is attractive, that can change in an instant. Yes. Someone can become very unattractive after an accident. Yes. Someone can be less fun to be with when now he has to go out and make a living. And as one young lady who I had the pleasure of mentoring before and since she's been married, she said, I had no idea how hard it was to be with somebody 24-7. I just didn't <laughs> expect how difficult it would be with being somebody with somebody all the time. And so that's where we learn. A lot of people think, well, if, if children saw happier marriages, then they'd be more likely to get married. Well, a happy marriage is not one where the man and the woman don't argue with each other. God gave Adam a helper, obviously, because he needed one. So men need women because without them, there's going to be huge holes in their thinking and their actions. So I always advise people, all right, so you're going to have disagreements. If the children see you disagree, 
make sure they see you make up. Yes. Make sure you say, yeah, dad and I were mad at each other yesterday, but we worked it out. Well, that brings something to my mind I wanted to mention. We did this in our last podcast, and I don't know if we'd planned to do it on this one, but I'm going to do it. I want to recommend a book to folks. It's titled Toward a Christian Marriage, a Chalcedon Study, and it contains several essays by R.J. Rushdooney and actually a few other folks, Lawrence Ayers and the late Joel Naderhood, who used to host the Back to God Hour, I believe was the name of the radio broadcast. It's a very short book, easy to read, but it's about 50 pages. Dr. Rushdooney's articles especially on Christian marriage are very important. And one of the points he makes in this book, especially aimed at men, is that the, the biblical pattern we see, starting in the Garden of Eden, is that the woman coming into his life as a helpmate did not occur until he had been given clear guidance and instruction from God, from the Lord, about what his calling and purpose was in life. The point is extrapolated from that, that men need to have some kind of an idea about what they're doing in life and what their calling is before they enter into a marital arrangement. And in other words, the whole idea now among some people, men and women, is that, well, marriage is to fulfill my desires. Marriage is, is what makes me whole. If you aren't whole before you get married, you're not going to get whole by being married. <laughs> Absolutely. And for a woman's point of view, since God created the woman to be a helper to the man, and I realize a lot of people don't like that thought and they just think it's so antiquated or whatever, but nonetheless, that's what it says. If he doesn't have a calling that he's pursuing, how does she know if she can help him? Right. And so instead of lamenting, which I hear often, there aren't a lot of good candidates for marriage. My advice is be serving God in the capacity that he has placed you, in the context he's placed you with the gifts and talents you have. And he will arrange someone to notice you who will be a helper. And you no doubt will notice someone who you can be submitted to. And so in that capacity, if we're serving God, he will provide what we need. And I'm going to put a shameless plug in for a book I have written called <laughs> Empowered, and it's available on Amazon. The thrust of the book is that we've got to get away from the idea of the Christian woman being meek in the sense of someone who's a pushover. She doesn't say much. She never argues. But along the lines of what you mentioned, the idea of broken to harness agreeing with the role God gave her, and exercising it in the fullest capacity. Now, there's a chapter in that book titled Loyal Opposition, and it made a lot of women happy because they were saying, somebody finally said it. What do I do when my husband's wrong about something? Well, you go to the scripture and you point out to your husband, you're wrong in that capacity. And the husband who should look at his wife as his best counselor, should pause and say, okay, let me think about that. Let me think about what I'm doing. Now, again, you have to use diplomacy in terms of when you're going to bring these subjects up and make sure you have time to do it and not a lot of you're this, you're that, you're the other thing. But for the kingdom of God to advance, we need both men and women covenanted together. And for those who maybe started off their marriage and didn't have that, well, if they learn biblical law, if they learn what each of their roles is supposed to be, 
they can find redemption and reconciliation in something that maybe didn't start off on the right footing. Yes, and I think that brings up the very fundamental issue of the first and primary goal of an individual is governing themselves according to God's law. And that means, say, for example, when you need to admit a wrong, you admit it. When you need to ask for forgiveness, you ask for it and you give it. I remember a couple of different times over the over the years, the decades, hearing very specifically one from an older couple who, this was probably over 30 years ago, maybe 40 years ago now, uh, and they were quite elderly at the time, telling me that we've never had a fight. In all our years of marriage, we've never had a fight. And I remember sometime later talking to a man, uh, a good friend of mine at the time, telling me, I never have a problem with my wife and I never fight. I just always say yes. I just always <laughs> say yes. Now, the thing about both those, and I, I, I mean, they were being half serious, half funny. But in the first case, either they were lying or there's something terribly wrong if they've never had a fight in 30 or 40 years of marriage. I don't know how you could do that. And the other one, of course, if he was being honest, then then that's not a good scenario either. But I was thinking uh, when you were talking about like uh, the, the woman pointing out to the husband biblically, if he's wrong here or there, how that is or is not reflected in culture. One of my favorite all-time old TV series was The Honeymooners with Jackie Gleason and Audrey Meadows. And, you know, it, the, each episode was almost identical, where Ralph would get himself into some trouble, his wife would try to convince him otherwise, and he would go off and do some stupid thing or other, hilariously funny. But the thing was, on almost every time, every episode, he would end up apologizing. He would end up saying, you know, you're right. Now, there, was pro- there were problems in terms of whatever biblical perspective, but you compare that sort of thing to today. I could mention a few that might come close, but the, the, look, at, look at the men, the husbands in, in the ad, average sitcom or even drama on TV today. I mean, it's horrible. I think that's part of the problem is that people don't have any paradigm. They don't have any thing by which to gauge what this ought to look like. I mean, the case that you mentioned at the beginning where people have been married 30, 40 years and they're looking to end their marriages, I think is a different sort of thing. You know, we could talk about that. But, I mean, I've heard cases recently that I've found rather disturbing of young people who I know were brought up in Christian contexts, however imperfectly, but I mean, they weren't brought up as pagans who have been married for a few weeks, a few months, and they're already looking to end it. And yeah. Those are very troubling situations. You know, my husband and I recently celebrated our 42nd wedding anniversary, <laughs> and it's amazing how many people think that's a triumph beyond belief. I mean, (laughs) I remember as a kid going to a lot of people's 50th anniversary party. It was sort of commonplace that there would be a 50th anniversary party for grandparents, and they clearly were older people. But today, it's so rare that people just think, wow, 42, that's a lot. Well, it is a lot. And I joke and I say sometimes it seems like seven years, and sometimes it seems like 107 years. Because we've lived life together. You talked about the older gentleman. I remember that on my seventh anniversary, my husband and I were in a yogurt shop. And we were sort of proud of ourselves. We were seven years married. Our little son was with us. And this this cute couple were sitting next to each other on the same side of the table, really close. And I forget if he asked, like, what's the big celebration? We said, well, we've been married seven years. And he said, oh, we've been married 60 years. 
60. Wow. 60. And he looked at my husband and said, and you won't even know her till 25. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, uh, maybe I can call Ford and ask him later if that's the truth. <laughs> he says it is. Oh, he'll, anytime I tell that story, he says, that's absolutely true. <laughs> well, it's funny when you think about it. Most people, when they marry, they're young, they're healthy. And when they say those vows for better or worse, they really think better or not so good. They don't mm-hmm. think worse. Richer or poorer, they think richer. Okay, maybe we don't have as much money to do what we want. Sickness and in health, well, he has repeated problems with pneumonia or he was in an accident or she's an invalid. These vows are basically saying, I'm in for the long haul. Yes. And so when we think about what Jesus said, there is no marriage or giving in marriage in heaven. So this is clearly an earthly institution but a very important earthly institution. And that's part of how we're going to be judged in terms of our faithfulness. If we can't do it in our families, we'll never do it anyplace else. Yes, and the same Lord who said that is the same one who said that a man shall leave his parents and cleave to his wife. And that was a part of the kingdom vision and part of the mission that Jesus gave us to perpetuate that institution. And at the time, whenever we are given and participate in a new heaven and a new earth, when the latter reality becomes the situation, well, that's fine. But as you said, in the meantime, we have the institution of marriage that has been given to us by God. And our challenge is to perpetuate the biblical understanding and perspective of that among our children and their children, and also be aware of uh, the challenging counterfeit that is presented to us in a humanistic culture. And I think this becomes then both the challenge for people who are married and for people who are looking to get married, is when you find the source of law in a society, you find the God of the society. And uh, I think we can say from that, when you find the paradigm for, in this case, marriage that's presented to a society, then that too is a voice of authority saying, this is what marriage is to be about and what it's to look like. You can go to any good Bible-believing church and get the basic perspective from the Bible, or you can turn on the TV set and get the perspective of our modern culture, and you can see the stark contrast, not simply in terms of traditional marriage or the way people struggle with it today, but uh, we haven't even touched on this, is the redefinition of who and what can get married. And I was going to bring that up. The analogy of marriage, marriage is an analogy to something much greater, and that something much greater is Christ and his church. So the bride of Christ is the church, and her husband is one who sticks with her and keeps covenant with her and is faithful to the promises. And so as soon as we start tinkering with what the Bible says, and we grant to activities, actions, and unions that the Bible calls an abomination, we are desecrating the image God gives us of his relationship to his people. Yes, and I think it also um, goes right along with the problem of idolatry. When Paul and Romans 1 outlines these various things that pagans have given themselves over to, you know, the worshiping of beasts and creatures, right in that same list are the distortions of human sexuality. And he very clearly ties it 
to worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And they're not the same. There is an ontological difference between the creator and the creature. Insofar as we don't appreciate that, and that's not given to us, we will devolve into these alternative perspectives about what constitutes merit. And the thing is, when you study ancient pagan cultures like Greece and Rome, where things like uh, homosexuality and pedophilia were accepted, it's, it's interesting to see that even those people, you never saw two men marrying each other in those cultures, or two women. It was, it was just unheard of. And it's sort of like the term gay. That was a commonly accepted term that you could use to refer to somebody who was carefree and happy-go-lucky. Uh, I mean, you can't use that term to mean that anymore. Right. Um, it's hijacked. It's been a hijacked term. And again, if we're going to in any way say, well, that's how people are oriented, that's how they were born, then we'd have to say that we have to redefine abomination because abomination is a significant word that says more than disliked. It's repulsive. And so if God says it's repulsive, what business do we have of accepting it? Yes, and uh, it depends on what voice of authority you're going to listen to. I would say that prenuptial counseling, it's traditionally done, I think, with a pastor, but I think prenuptial counseling should also involve both sets of parents. And Titus 2 tells us that the older women are to teach the younger women how to love their husbands and children. There's a lot of necessity for teaching, and why it's important to be in a community of believers is when you hit that rough spot, when you hit that 24-7, I think I'm going to go crazy. Every time I turn around, there he is. Or every time I turn around, there she is. That you have someone who's traveled that road and can say, yes, but what's your alternative? What's your righteous alternative? And then people learn how the trials and tests of life help them grow in their service to God, help them become sanctified in their service to God so that they're much more ready for heaven when the time comes to go. Yes, and it's interesting how that particular point becomes a problem in churches and in communities. In churches, the, the phenomenon of the megachurch, where everything is very contemporary. I, I noticed this some years ago, when not long after my wife and I got married. We were in a, a very traditional Presbyterian church, and then we moved over to another side of town to a church that was on paper reformed, but they were very, very contemporary, very different demographic. One of the things that occurred to me many, many years later after I became a pastor was that that second church we were involved in that was so contemporary, its worship, everything about it was aimed at a younger crowd of people. And I don't think there was anyone in that church who was much more than 35 or 40 years of age. So there are no older women to teach the younger women in a situation like that. And similarly, in human communities, if the older people are shuffled off into nursing homes or wherever, and I, I understand that my own mother is in a nursing home right now, but the point is, is that there are no older people anywhere in the community anymore. Very, very different. Not just simply different than, say, 1920s or 30s America, but different than many, many civilizations throughout history where you just didn't shuffle off the older women or the older men. Well, even more significant is the fact that I can speak for women in this regard. Most women don't want to have their gray hair show. Well, first of all, our gray hair <laughs> helps identify us as, oh, there's an older woman. 
See, she's got gray hair. And I joke that I say I've earned every one of them. If we're trying to have this perpetual youth, then what we're really telling the younger people is there's no advantage in getting old, but there's a tremendous advantage in getting old. My daughter used to comment that whether I was on a grocery line or we were at an airport waiting, she'd say, Mom, you have all these people who will open up to you and tell you things that I can't imagine they tell even some of their closest friends. And she said, I don't know how you do it. I said, well, number one, I listen. But number two, I think I'm accessible. I think the gray hair makes me accessible, that I'm maybe less of a threat. I don't know. Since the scripture says that gray hair is the crown of old men, I think we can also say it's also the crown of older women. And I appreciate it because it gives me access and availability that I think a lot of other people who are trying so hard to look younger miss out on. I remember reading an article by someone who, uh, as a much younger man, spent some time in another country where there were very different values, uh, a country with a long, long history. I'm being purposely vague. But he uh, had occasion to return to that place after about 30 or 40 years in which he himself had become quite gray and visibly older than when he was there before. And uh, he was able to return to the same village and place where he had spent time in his early 20s. And even some of the same people who were there were still there. And he said, I was, I really was struck by the fact that one of the first things that they said to me was, look how old you are. <laughs> but they meant it as a compliment. They absolutely meant it as a compliment because in that culture, that was a great thing that you would age and become gray. And, but he said at first he took great umbrage, you know, at least internally. It took him a while to get used to it. Then he remembered, oh, well, they're actually paying me a compliment. And that's the other thing that we have to keep in mind, that the standards that put forth in the media of the ideal woman, what she's supposed to look like, what her shape is, you know, women who've had children, who've nursed children, who have spent their time really investing in their family, they're not going to look like they did 20 years before. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't ways to be healthy, and I'm a big proponent that you should be healthy in terms of longevity and service to the kingdom. But I don't look like I did when I was 20. And I certainly, I don't know about you, I wouldn't want to go back to my mindset when I was 20. No. I was quite a lost young lady. <laughs> well, and not only that, you see, especially out there where you are, the, the, well, you'd have to be out there, but the movie stars, you know, the TV personalities who are in this constant battle to hide the signs of aging. And you can always tell there's just something not quite right about this look, regardless of who it is. Now, unfortunately, it tends to be the women who have to do that in our culture. But no matter how successful the surgery or the Botox or, or even the dyeing of the hair, I mean, there's something about it when a woman hits a certain age where it's like, okay, why don't we just be who we are instead of all this stuff that obviously doesn't quite fit the situation? You know? Right. And they don't ever fool the young people. So if I'm trying to look like I'm in my 20s, a 20-year-old knows I'm not, no matter how much I try. Yeah. And I take a lot of fun with people, but I'll tell them how old I am because I just turned 64. And they'll say, oh, you don't look 64. And I'll joke and I'll say, oh, what do I look, 61 or 59? <laughs> and then they realize that they're, they're, they're basically saying, you don't look like you're falling apart. Well, okay, that's good. 
that's good. But the truth is, at 64, you shouldn't be falling apart. And there's a lot of reasons why people end up looking bad at certain ages, probably because they haven't paid a lot of attention to their health. But I'm not complimented if you think I'm 50 years old as opposed to 64, because it's just a number. Uh, I remember reading about a famous woman author and I'll say social critic who upon her 40th birthday was told, well, you don't look 40. And her response was, but this is what 40 looks like. (laughs) I think we've talked about this subject from a lot of different angles. Do you think there's anything we haven't covered? No, I would just like to uh, say again that uh, the book Toward a Christian Marriage that's available on Amazon and also from the Chalcedon Foundation. And I was going to mention your book as the second one. So um, either or both these books would be a good combination for people who want to pursue this subject further. And the title of my book is Empowered. Until next time, Charles, as always, it's fun talking with you. As well as to you, Andrea. Next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.